Father in heaven, we ask you to help us now listen to what you have said. We pray that you'd help us give attention to your word. We pray, Lord, that your word would be unfolded and it would give light, warmth, heat to our hearts, to our souls. We pray that you'd make us wise by what we hear, wise for salvation, wise for glorifying you, wise in understanding how all of Scripture is about your Son, Christ. Father, we pray that you'd help us hear and obey. We thank you for this privilege to have your word exposed to us. We ask you now to work and get glory to yourself. In the name of your Son, we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Do you know how to recognize greatness? Let me ask you a question that I hope that you'll get to tell somebody in the room in the next 30 seconds. Here's the question. Who is the greatest U.S. president? When you think of the greatest United States president in our history, there's about 45 names or so to choose from. Go ahead and think. Who's the greatest United States president that we've ever had? And once you know... Tell the person sitting next to you, compare your answer. Go ahead. All right. If you said, I'm just going to take a stab at this. If you said George Washington, slip your hand up a little bit. I see a few. That's who I would have probably voted for, picked. If you said Abraham Lincoln, put your hand up. A few more hands. If you said Ulysses S. Grant, put your hand up. We're going to stop there. I'm not going to go through all the presidents. Uh, Just by mentioning two names, you proved the point that I'm trying to make. If I ask who's the greatest United States president that we've ever had, sometimes the room instantly is divided. It's not as if everybody in in one unanimous motion all said the same name, put their hand up for the same name. Why is that? Why is that? Can you recognize greatness? Why is it that when there's a collection of people or things or sports teams or commands? Why is it that we as human beings can't all unanimously just all look and say, yep, that's the greatest one? Why do we have trouble having a unified perspective of what greatness is? I think it's part of our fallen nature, isn't it? We all have certain things that we perceive as greater, certain things we value, Some of you may have even wondered when I asked that simple question, well, what do you mean by the greatest U.S. president? Are you talking about in terms of their their practical policies? Are you talking about just their character? Are you talking about their economic status before and after leaving office? We want to have definitions. What do you mean by greatness? Greatness, as much as we know what the word greatness means, it can be a little bit slippery at times to know when to attach it to something. And in the Bible, there's actually... Over a thousand different commands in the Bible, actually a lot more than a thousand, some 600 or so commands in the Old Testament, a thousand or so in the New Testament. If you add all that up, how are we to make sense of what's the greatest commandment in Scripture? And for that matter, why do we even know and need to know what's the greatest commandment in Scripture? If you didn't know what the sermon was going to be about today and you haven't read the passage in advance, I want to encourage you that today we're going to be talking about, thinking about the greatest commandment in all of Scripture. It's it's objective. Jesus tells us. And we're going to be thinking about why he says what he says and what it means for our lives. So if you are like me and you've never heard a sermon on the greatest command, let's go in the Word. Turn in your Scripture, your copy of the Word, to Mark 12. We get to sit under Jesus' words today, speaking of the greatest commandment in all of Scripture. Mark chapter 12, we'll be looking at verses 28 through 34. Mark 12, here's the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? 
Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. There it is. Did you recognize the greatness spoken of there? None greater than these. Jesus gives the two greatest commands in all of Scripture. The persuasive aim of this chapter and and my prayer for this message today is that our lives would recognize the greatness that Jesus speaks of here, the greatness of the commands, and that we would leave this place today knowing what to do about it, understanding what Jesus means and, and what he's talking about. To be a little bit more specific, the persuasive aim of this passage is that our lives, mine and yours, our lives would experience a a holistic love to the one true God so that all of our faculties, all of our abilities are enlisted in loving him and that we would also love our neighbor as ourself. That's a tall task, but that's the aim of this passage I pray that you would recognize that greatness this morning. That greatness that we're speaking of, that persuasive aim, it only happens when fueled by the gospel. And we'll see that in a little bit. But I want to remind us that literally just a few days after Jesus spoke this, he went to the cross and he died. He rose again from the grave three days later But these words he's speaking are in the final few days of his earthly life. We parachuted down here into Mark chapter 12. And before we unpack what Jesus means, just to get our bearings, here's what's happening. We're in the final week of Jesus' life in the gospel of Mark. Mark is a fast-paced narrative. Three years of ministry are compressed into the book But then the narrative slows down, and on the final week of Jesus' life, after going at such a brisk pace for three years in this, this narrative, we get six chapters that unfold the last week of his life. The camera slows down tremendously. And right here in Mark chapter 12, what we just read, did you see how verse 28 puts you right in the middle of something that's already ongoing? Did you see how verse 28 started? One of the scribes came up to him and heard them disputing with one another. What's, what's that about? It's kind of jarring, isn't it, if you walk into a room and a bunch of people are arguing and disputing? Well, that's kind of what it feels like for us to just start right here in Mark 12. To get our bearings, take a look with me at what happened and why this is happening. Uh, if you look at Mark 12, just a few verses previous. Look at verse 12 for a moment. Verse 12, it says, they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told a parable against them. So they left him and went away. And then look at verse 13, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. The immediate context here is Jesus is in the temple complex, the final week of his earthly ministry, his earthly life, and the Pharisees, pretty soon the Sadducees, the Herodians, different elders and scribes, the Sanhedrin, are all seeking to trap him in his talk. Those different groups would 
kind of rival and jockey for position. And they rivaled each other in trying to influence the people because it was a public setting there in the temple. And as much as they disliked each other and rivaled for position, they were united in something. They were united in their opposition against Jesus. And right here in this context of where we find ourselves today, we just parachuted down into the last little moment of them attacking Jesus with questions. Do you remember how the passage ended that we read? Look back again at the last sentence of verse 34. After that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So the passage we have today is it's starting out in the midst of that mayhem of questions, that, that game of chess where they're trying to put their questions, their pawns on the board and trying to, to trap the royalty of Christ, but they can't get any kind of checkmate. And at the end of our passage today, all the questions stop. What is it? What did Jesus say that would make their mouths shut and no more questions would come at them? Well, it has something to do with Jesus' unblemished teaching ability, his perfect track record of teaching. He has an impeccable character as a teacher. And they recognize the greatness that they're trying to launch their puny attacks at, in part because of this interchange right here. Now, they'll mount an attack later, but it won't be with just questions. It'll be a physical attack on him. So today, let's, let's dig into these questions. What do they mean? There's three different movements to this passage. There's a good question that's asked. That's part one. Part two is a perfect answer that Jesus gives. And then part three, there's a wise response. Those are the three portions of the, the passage here. That's the way that we'll walk through this today. A good question, a perfect answer, and a wise response. This back and forth dialogue begins with a good question. Even though the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees had been asking, for lack of a better term, bad questions up until this point, this was actually a good question. Here's how we know this is a good question. It actually involves putting our eyes a few verses before this passage. So put your eyes back on Mark chapter 11, verse 28, to see a bad question. Mark eleven twenty-eight. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? That was a bad question because they weren't willing to submit to Christ's authority. They were trying to trap him in his speech. Jesus knows it's a bad question. By the way, he answers their question with a question right there. And they don't want to play the game. He, Jesus outwits them, outsmarts them, because he leverages what he knows and their fear of the people. So that's a bad question they ask. We see that in part because Jesus doesn't just directly answer it. He answers it with a question. Then if we look in Mark chapter 12, flip over. Mark chapter 12, here's another bad question. Verse 23. Mark 12, 23. The Sadducees ask him, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be, Jesus? She had seven. They had created this little scenario of, of a marriage times seven and tried to poke fun at the resurrection. That's a bad question. It's a bad question. We know that because of how Jesus answers it. Again, this time he actually rebukes them on the front end of their question. Is this not the reason you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? Then he answers the question. This is all helping us understand why this question in our passage today is a good question. Jesus doesn't respond with a question or respond with a rebuke. Jesus, in our passage today, when this scribe says, Jesus, what's the most important commandment of all? That scribe's not rebuked. Jesus doesn't just pose a question back. He answers it. And he doesn't just give him the greatest commandment. He gives him 
the second greatest commandment. These clues help us understand what the scribe asked in Mark 12, 28 was a good question. Now, we don't know the scribe's motive, but we know that he asked a good question. So I want to ask you a question. Are you good at asking holy, godly, good, God-honoring questions? What kind of questions do you ask? And here's what I mean. This is application for us, and then we'll move on right into point number two. But before we do, here's some application about questions. Have you ever thought about the questions that you ask daily in life, and even in your Christian walk with God? Your questions can be good or bad. Maybe you've heard somebody say, there's no such thing as a bad question. Typically, they're meaning like in an academic school setting, and that's generally true. Most questions are good, but there are bad questions. Here's what I mean, and here's the application you can fold up and take with you. For example, imagine a teenager asking their parents or their friends or even asking God, God, who am I going to marry? Where am I going to live one day? What's my job going to be one day? Now, you may wonder, how can you say those are bad questions? Well, put it on the spectrum of good, better, and best. You know, that person may ask that with a good motive, but if you ask the question, who am I going to marry one day? And you think God's going to tell you exactly what they look like and how tall they're going to be, what hair color they're going to have, what eye color, what their hobbies and interests are going to be. That's a bad question to ask because in the scriptures, we're not told those kind of things. It's a little bit more principial. So a better question than asking, God, who am I going to marry one day? A better question would be, what has God said about marriage in the scripture? That's a better question. Or a better question, God, what sort of qualities should I be cultivating? What sort of qualities and character traits should I be looking for so that I can prepare for marriage? Do you see how that's a better question? Or take it this way. If you ask this question in a time of grief and you say, God, why are you not working in my life right now? That's a bad question. It's bad because we know God is always at work especially in the life of a Christian. He works all things together for good for those who love him. According to his will, his sovereignty. So to ask the question, God, why are you not at work in my life right now? That's bad. A better question, a good question, would be to say, since God is always working, since God is always at work in my life, why am I having trouble seeing it right now? Can you see the difference? A good question and a bad question. Bad questions can lead us to just doubt God and question his character in a way that's unhelpful. Good questions point us to the truth and they keep us leaning forward and seeking an answer. You may even ask a question like after reading a Bible passage, what does this mean to me? It's a bad question. Don't ever catch yourself asking, what does this passage mean to me? Instead, ask, what is the author's intention here? What is God desiring of me based on this truth? Don't just simply ask, what does it mean to me? And put yourself in the seat of interpretation. That's how you can start to err. I want to encourage us as a church family to help one another ask the right questions. Maybe you've overheard one of your brothers and sisters before say, man, I can't believe, why did God give me these next door neighbors? They're so annoying. Why did God give me these coworkers at the company? This is where we can gently and lovingly come alongside each other and say, hey, I know brother, I know sister, you're just expressing emotion, it's tough. But a better question might be, since God's sovereign, why is God giving you those coworkers and those next door neighbors in the sense of what is it that he's wanting you to, to do to be on witness and mission before them? Let's help each other recalibrate asking the right questions. Children, I want to invite you, no matter what age you are, bring your questions to your parents. If you've ever wondered, is it okay to ask mom and dad something? Are they going to think this is a bad question? I can assure you, 
bring your questions to your parents. If you have questions about who God is, ask your parents. If you have questions about why you're learning, what you're learning in school, ask your parents. If you have questions about life or your body or your surroundings or the culture, don't think that it's better to run to Google and some search engine or just to run to your friends. Go to your parents. As Josh read for us earlier in the service, we want to honor our father and mother. Go to them with your questions. Parents, grandparents, I would exhort you, be listening for the type of questions that your children and grandchildren are asking of life. Be that godly influence that can help put the right questions in front of them. Well, let's keep moving. There's a good question, right, that was asked at the beginning. And this scribe might have not even realized how good of a question it was because he wasn't rebuked. It wasn't met with another question. It was met with a plain, robust, more than he asked for answer. This is part two, the perfect answer. This is found in verse 29. Look at what Jesus says to that question. What's the most important command? In the original language there, that means what's first? What's of first rank? That's what most important means. What's of first rank? What's most weighty? What's greatest? Here's what Jesus says, verse 29. Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then he gives him something he didn't even ask for. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And just to make sure that he's clear in what he's saying and nobody twists his words, Jesus puts this positive statement. He says, there is no other commandment greater than these. Wow. What a perfect answer. It's perfect in the sense of who's saying it, the perfect one, the sinless one, Jesus, the one who embodied what he's saying. It's perfect in the sense of the source from where it comes from, the literary source where, it, where Jesus is drawing this. It's perfect in the sense of how all-encompassing it is. It's perfect in the sense that it's not based on man and passing whims of culture. It's timeless. It's enduring Beyond even this mortal life, it's a perfect answer because it goes beyond into eternity. What Jesus says here, the greatest command in all of Scripture, and he gives two, are the greatest commands now and forevermore. This is kind of a bridge, if you will, from what life will be like in heaven and a foretaste of heaven now when we live this verse out. What does it tell us about our God that the first rank command, the highest command, is to love him? To love that which is most lovely, to love that which is most excellent, to love that which is most pure, to love that which is highest good, to love that which offers deepest joy. How amazing that the God we serve, his highest command is to love him. Compare that with Islam and other false religions. And even religions who would claim to hijack this verse and say that it's their greatest commandment, i.e. liberal Christianity that doesn't believe in a literal resurrection, doesn't believe in a virgin birth, strips the Bible of miracles. Liberal Christianity may love to champion this verse. Yes, it's all about love. Even an Orthodox Jew who doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah would say, yes, this verse, this is the most important command. What makes this a distinctly Christian belief for you if you believe this is the greatest command? Well, it's simple. We believe that this command is the greatest commandment and only Jesus has ever lived it out perfectly and only Jesus can be in our place 
shielding us from the wrath of God that falls on anyone who does not keep this greatest command. Take your minds back a moment to the winter storm. If one of you had left to go out of town three or four days before that winter storm hit Austin, and you left a list of things, five or six things, you knew the storm was coming, you grew up in a colder climate, so you kind of knew what to do. You didn't know it would get this cold, but you knew it would be below freezing. And you left a list for your neighbor, and it said things like, make sure all the faucets are dripping, make sure the dog has a bowl of water and some dog food, check on the dog each day, make sure you put a tarp and a covering over the flowers so the flowers don't get ruined, make sure the thermostat's set at a good level. But then at the end of the list they say, but let me reemphasize, the greatest command I'm asking you to do while I'm gone is to keep the pipes dripping. Make sure they're all dripping. And the second greatest command is to keep the pipes dripping. This person was wise. They didn't try to tell this person how to turn off the water to their whole house. They're like, I'm just going to keep it simple. Keep all the pipes dripping. Well, then what happens if they come back from their trip and the person holds up the list and said, I did everything. Look, I protected your plants outside. Your dog is super happy because he was never thirsty for a moment. I checked on him all the time. The thermostat was right where you wanted me to set it. I only kept one out of six of the pipes dripping. And there's flood damage and there's broken pipes and the house is having a major catastrophe. Think about how that person who wrote that list would feel if what they said was picked and choosed, for, for a better term, dissected and interpreted in the way they wanted it interpreted and not the way they wrote the list. That's what we're at risk of doing with the greatest commandment because we see heart, soul, mind, strength. We see these different facets, faculties of our life, and we're tempted to think, well, I'm doing okay in one of them, or I'll just pursue God in one of them. But God's asking for an unreserved loyalty of love that is all of our faculties. This verse covers all of our, our human faculties. Jesus gives the perfect answer here because it recruits and enlists all of us to do it. Jesus is proclaiming here an authority over your loves. Our culture would say love is just you do you, you do what you want with your love, you love whatever gender you want, you love whatever orientation somebody has. As long as they're being loving, it's okay. But according to the Bible, Jesus sets the agenda for our loves. He has authority over them. He tells us what to do with our mind. Love the Lord with it. What to do with our strength. Love the Lord with it. What to do with our, our heart, our soul. Love God with it. He is in the authority position to tell us what to do with our loves. And did you notice? It's perfect because Jesus is not pulling this out of thin air. He's pulling this right from the Old Testament. This is a perfect answer because it's in harmony with what God has already revealed. When Jesus says, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one, that's coming from Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 and 5. You may have heard this being called the Shema. That's from that Hebrew word, Shema. And that Hebrew word, Shema, means to hear. So it's the, the first word in the phrase. It's a Confession of faith, if you will, for the, for the Jews at this time, even today. Pious Jews will quote the Shema in the morning, in the evening. Every synagogue service will start with the Shema, even to this day. But it's a call to hear, to not forget, to not drift. Jesus is connecting the dots to where if you want to love God more with all of your being, it doesn't start with just, I'm going to flex my muscle and love him more and I really just want to love him more. It starts with actually listening. The call to hear is the link to loving him. Hear, O Israel. And it's doctrinal. The first thing they are to hear is that the Lord is one. Yes, he's Trinitarian, Father, Son, Spirit, but he's one. It's three in one. Not three separate gods doing their own thing, but in a beautiful mystery. Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons, one God. And when 
Jesus quotes here Deuteronomy 6 and says the Lord is one. That oneness also gets at his unparalleled being. He's the only uncreated one. He's unique. He is alone in preeminence. There are no other gods besides him. So this command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, what's driving that train is doctrinal. Maybe you've seen people in our culture, whether they have t-shirts or bracelets or whatever, they say, love God, love people. That's good. That is a summary of the summary of the greatest commandment. It's a summary because if you ask somebody, what's the greatest commandment in scripture, we'll often cut off the doctrinal part and go straight to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. The greatest commandment is Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God. It's a doctrinal stance that we listen to and we hear. And by faith, we then love God because the doctrinal truth, which we'll get to in a moment in the gospel, has awakened us to love him. It's never love detached from doctrine. You have to be careful, brothers and sisters. There are some churches that champion just love God, love people, and doctrine is never talked about in sermons or songs or prayers or Sunday school classes or small groups because it's just a feel-good thing. Be careful. But also, don't, don't twist it and think it's just doctrine. It's not really a love thing. It's just doctrine. It is a love thing. It's a relational thing. God doesn't tell you and me submit to God and serve God and never talks about love. He puts love on the greatest commandment because it's a real relationship with the living God. We know he's a living God and I'm not just making that up because he's a speaking God because he says here the living God is a speaking God who's revealed what he desires of us. He's revealed who he is, what he's like, his ways, his character. So when we hear And when we love back, a relationship is there. But we can't think it's just our own strength, our own love. Again, this is why Jesus came to die. Because we don't keep this command perfectly. And because God's infinitely holy, when we don't keep the greatest command, it's quite a slap in the face to say we've kept other commands. This verse is embodied by Jesus. It's why he came to die in our place. But it also is a call to our obedience. If you wonder, how can I know if I'm loving God? Which is the type of question that's a good question. How can I know I'm loving God? Well, remember what 1 John 5, 3 says? It's not vague notions of obedience. It's concrete. It says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments And his commandments are not burdensome. A Christian, we understand, a Christian is a person who gets their fundamental guidance from what God has said and revealed. And a Christian is one who increasingly loves the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and loves their neighbor as themselves. Somebody can try to do that without being born again, but it takes a heart that's been cleansed by sin So that when we start doing that, we're not trying to earn God's favor. Because this verse is all-encompassing, our motivation for it is going to wane really quickly unless God has renewed our heart and can keep us coming back to it and increasing in it. Unless we're born again, our greatest love that we give with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, it can be different idols. It's often ourself. So we have to be careful that we don't just see this command, walk away, and think, I'll do that. I don't need doctrine. I don't need Jesus. I'll do that. Jesus spoke this command, again, remember, a few days before he died. If he just needed to teach this, he could have spoken this and beamed right up to heaven and not had to die on the cross. He knows you and I will fail at this. That's why he shed his blood in your place. That's why his blood is perfect, because he kept this verse in all perfection. Before we move to point three, I just want to touch on what does it mean 
these different areas, heart, soul, mind, strength. What does that mean? Love our neighbor. Can you please be practical for a moment? Yes. Here's what it means. Heart. This is our affections. It's more than just our emotions, but they can be involved. It's our affections, our desires, our longings. We are to have a whole heart to the Lord in love because he searches all hearts. We are to find our satisfaction in him because our heart affections are telling of if we really love him. Affections like holiness and satisfaction in him must be present and growing as they flow out of a love for God. That's heart. Soul, soul might sound weird to define, but it's not that bad. The soul is that immaterial side of you. Jesus would tell us in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, don't fear those who can kill the body, but can't kill the soul. The soul is that part of the person that exists even after death. The soul, your soul is existing now, but it's also going to exist even after your physical body decays or dies and you'll have a new glorified body if you're a Christian in heaven. Your soul and your body go together. The scriptures teach they're a unity. But the soul, if we want to get even more practical, in the Psalms it it talks about the soul. In the Old Testament, the soul is referenced. Righteous Lot was tormenting his righteous soul when he was around the wicked. What, what is the soul? The soul is that part of you that can commune with God. If you want to get as specific as you can be. The soul is distinct from the body, but it's that part of you that can commune with God and have either fellowship with him or rebellion from him. The soul is that inner core that experiences the realities through the filter of your heart, soul, and mind. Sorry, through your heart, mind, and strength. We know this to be true because somebody could have Alzheimer's, for example. They could be completely losing their mind, but that doesn't mean their soul is completely unraveled, frantic. Their soul is out of control. Their mind might be. And we may no longer have the ability to to commune with their soul like we once did, but God, God knows what's going on with their soul. The soul allows us to have fellowship, to draw near to something, to have experiential dealings with it. The soul, I mean, you could, you could try to get scientific and say the soul is like the central nervous system and, and your hands and feet are like the mind and heart doing and interacting and yet, yet your soul is so intertwined. It's hard to describe the soul, but it's that immaterial side of you. What Jesus is saying here in the greatest command is not try to extract your soul out of your human faculties and just make sure your soul's doing okay and, and your heart and mind and strength kind of do whatever at times. He's keeping them all together as a whole, as a unit, because we're human beings made in the image of God. We are mortal flesh, yes, but we also have immortality because God has created us with souls, meaning we will live forever, either in heaven or hell, but we will live forever. Because we have a soul. Your soul goes on. And our mind, what is that? The mind is the cognition, the understanding, the perception, study, memorization, these different things we give our mental attention to. Whether it's rigorous thought or not so complex ideas, our mind should be willing and active. God understands every plan and thought. Our strength That's your actions, your outward display of energy and movement, perseverance even through suffering, the use of your body, your productivity, your industriousness, your ability to take dominion. You know this, your strength will fail at times in your life, especially as you approach death. Your mind and heart may may fail at times. Our bodies are frail, but Jesus is asking in this greatest command, that we would love God with all of our being and not pick and choose what we're going to love him with. We give all of our loving loyalty to God. 
So we love him with these things, with all of our capacity. We leverage that in love for him because, again, it's a relationship. And lest we think that it just stops between us and God, all those who are image bearers around us, all other human beings, we are to love them as ourselves. This is the golden rule spoken of in Matthew 7, 12. If you want to see a practical fleshing out of this, look at the passage of the great, uh, the Good Samaritan in Luke. Read that later today. I like how D.A. Carson, Bible scholar, he said, just as one's natural will is bent on self-benevolence, it must now look outward and extend concern to others. Can you see how the two great commands are, are taking our our inward natural bent on ourself and opening it up to where we love God with our whole being and, and we're opened up, not looking at ourselves, open up to look at others made in his image and love them. This command requires all of us. One of the ways you can live out the golden rule is to see someone else. You've heard the phrase, walk a mile in their shoes. See someone else. Imagine You've switched places with them, and you're now looking back at yourself. What would you want yourself to do to that person, Either whether it's a, something you might say or do for them or pray for them or help them? And then you realize you didn't actually switch places. You're, you're still yourself. You never switch bodies or anything. And now you act towards that person in a way. What I'm doing right now, man, if that were me instead of that person, I'm going to use all the love I can to interact with them. That's what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's a sign of maturity in our Christian life to increasingly love our neighbor as ourself. You know, as you're first trying to do this, it might mean that you have people over to your home post-pandemic, and you have them over to your home, and you think, what kind of food should I make for them? And you just think, what's my favorite food? Okay, I'm going to make this kind of barbecue and this brisket for them. And then you come to realize when they're there, they're eating it in their face, they're, you realize they don't like barbecue. They would much rather have spaghetti. And you think, did I just fail at the the love your neighbor as yourself thing? I'll never get this. No, you were doing it, but your your knowledge needed to have some knowledge you didn't have yet. You tried your best to prepare for them a loving thing, your favorite. But once you found out that's not their favorite, it helps you just double-click, kind of zoom out a little bit. Okay, I'm going to ask them what their favorite is before they come next time. Ah, okay. So you you see how that impulse of I'm going to think about somebody and how I can treat them well can still be tainted with our own view. But the more we learn about others and get to know them, we will get better and better at loving our neighbor as ourself. We do that in accordance with God's word. To love God with our whole being and love our neighbor If you want the best application I can give, it's this. Read the whole Bible. The whole Bible is about helping you love God rightly and love your neighbor rightly. It says elsewhere in the Gospels that on these two greatest commands hang all the law, all the prophets. So if you're leaving here today and you're like, it's still a little fuzzy. I don't know what it means to love my neighbor as as oneself. I would say pick a command in the Bible that deals with your neighbor like Josh read for us, do not steal. And recognize that that command is a part of loving your neighbor. In fact, the Ten Commandments, the first four are about loving God. The last six are about loving neighbor. No matter where you go in the scriptures, it's about loving God with a doctrinal accuracy that leads to a warm love for him and then a love for other people. You've heard the expression, don't miss the forest for the trees. If the Bible seems too complex, too confusing for you, you get bogged down in Leviticus and elsewhere, perhaps you're looking at the trees and you're missing the forest. These two greatest commands are are giving you a scope of the whole of what God wants of your life. Even the verses we looked at last week in Micah 6, 8, to do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God, they fit into these greatest commands. It's It's a retelling, a summary of these greatest commands. This is what God is after. But you know what? The best place to look, if you want to apply these two verses, yes, you could go look at other commands in Scripture, and that's good. Do that. 
Yes, you could look at Christian heroes and the godly people around you to do this verse more and more. But the best place you could look is look to Jesus himself in the Gospels. In all the scriptures, we see glimpses of Jesus. In the Gospels, we get these four portraits, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of how Jesus lived, how he spent his time, how he interacted with others, his devotion to the Lord. Let that be your example. This is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But there's doctrine on the front end. You have to hear who God is and what he's like to then be able to love him rightly. You've heard the joke, haven't you? Valentine's Day, it came and went. We had the storm, so we didn't get to use it. The husband who comes home hands his wife flowers, chocolate. Honey, you have the most beautiful green eyes. I was thinking of them and I got these for you. She says, my eyes are blue. What are you talking about? That would be a horrible mistake. That man is just imagining the woman that is not his wife that he's imagining he wants her to be. If we try to love God with all of our our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we miss the doctrinal part at the beginning, hear me, listen to me. I am the only God. Know the right things about me. If we don't get that, we're going to love a God of our own making. And that can be deadly. I want to warn you against that, but I want to encourage you that if you have accurate glimpses of who God is, accurate knowledge in the word, love God, love the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2.10 tells us those who are perishing are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. It's not enough just to know about God. It's take what you learn about God, love that truth, meditate on it before him, and let it lead to prayer and praise and obedience to him. That's how a walk with God is supposed to go. Well, let's close here on... What do you do after somebody gives you a perfect answer like this scribe got from Jesus? The good question is now met with a perfect answer and now at the end here, a wise response. The scribe, there in verse 32, look at what it says. The text tells us in verse 32, this wise response. The scribe says, you are right, teacher. You've truly said he's one, there's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, To love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And notice Jesus didn't just pick at him and say, hey, you forgot to use the word soul, man. He's giving an accurate summary of what Jesus just said. And he's doing a wise thing. He's not just saying, okay, Jesus, you're right. He's doing a wise thing in his response because he's now thinking of the implications of what Jesus has said. When he says there, to love one's neighbor, to love God that way, it's much more than whole burnt offerings. Is your impulse the same as the scribe to agree with Jesus, to see the implications of, of Jesus' words and how he lived? Yes, genuine wholehearted love for God and love for neighbor, it's far more and surpassing worth and sacrifice. This is why, as Samuel has been preaching through 1 Samuel, when we got to 1 Samuel 15, 22, King Saul was rebuked in 1 Samuel 15, 22. The scriptures tell us it's better to obey than sacrifice. It's better to hear and to listen than the fat of rams. Do you hear the greatest commandment? Can you recognize the greatness there? Hearing, obeying, not just to sacrifice. This is a wise answer from this scribe because he affirms Jesus being right. You can imagine the other scribes around saying, hey, man, be quiet. You're not supposed to tell everybody he's right. We're trying to trap him and arrest him. But the scribe can't contain himself. You're right. We don't know all the scribe's motives here, but it's sweet to see his response affirming Jesus. Do you know why Jesus, though, says what he says to the scribe? Did you notice how Jesus didn't say to the scribe, you're in the kingdom of God, you're great. You're you're in the kingdom, man. Did you notice what Jesus said? He said, you're not far from the kingdom. 
So the wise response of the scribe is met with an even wiser response by Jesus because Jesus, with laser vision, can see the difference between words and the actions of a person. Anyone can repeat the greatest commandment. Anyone can do that. This scribe knew what it was before Jesus said it. Jesus says it. You've probably heard of it. So even though we have a wise response here, I want to challenge you, brothers and sisters, to live wisely and not merely know the truth, but to live it out. I knew a young man, this was back in 2001, I knew this young man who thought that he knew the commands of Scripture. He was in the youth group of our church. He always had seemingly pretty good answers, pretty theological answers. But he was reading the book of James, and when he got to James 2.19, it said, You believe God is one, you do well, good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder and tremble. And that young man realized, wow, just having right knowledge of God's commands, even the greatest command, which James 2.19 quotes, the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Just to to believe that that's a, a real true command, good, so do the demons. We have to obey the greatest command. Not just know what it is. Not just hear it once, agree with it, file it away, assume it. We need to be thinking of it. And whenever we're in the scriptures relating things back to it, because love is what God is after, we can drift into a transactional or a cold intellectual walk with God if we don't remember he's after love. Earlier when we were trying to define soul and it was kind of hard to define You could also think of your soul as what communes with the Lord, so prayer. So prayer, study in the word, loving other people, singing, listening to preaching, listening to Bible teaching, obeying, all these things, your whole life, everything you're doing, the job that you work throughout the week, the children that you're helping raise and cultivate, all of it, it's all meant to be leveraged to love God. How? All the commands God gives for those specifics, you hear and you do. And when you do, you can trust, I'm doing this because it fits under the banner of love for God. How sweet that we love because he first loved us. Please don't just try to do this verse when you leave here today. First, realize Jesus did this verse in your place. And if you've never turned away from your sin and missing the mark of this verse, if you've never acknowledge to God you've missed the mark and no matter how much good you try to do now you've already missed the mark turn from that and look to Christ look to Jesus for how to live this verse and for your standing with God because he did these verses and when you behold Jesus doing it and Jesus providing your forgiveness and reconciliation with God looking at his glory it begins to change you from one degree of glory to the next. That's how you increase in your love for God and love for neighbor, by looking to Jesus. He'll transform you to look more like him. And looking like him means that we will obey the greatest commands. Can you recognize greatness? I hope you see it when you look at Jesus. Let's pray.